Welcome to RUF. If this is your first time, uh, my name is Robert Knuth. I'm the campus minister here with RUF at Michigan. Um, one of the things I say every week, just because uh, I love new people, I love when they come, even if you've been around for a while and you're trying to get like the DNA of, of who we are as a, as a group on campus, as a ministry, uh, RUF is a community where we're learning how to love. We're learning how to love God. We're learning how to love ourselves. We're learning how to love uh, each other, and we're learning how to love this beautiful place that we call the University of Michigan. And so if that's you and you don't have that figured out, then join the club. <laughs> we're all trying to figure this out together. Um, so this semester, this whole semester long, we've been going through a series that uh, I've called Relationships Reimagined. It's kind of our take of looking at how the gospel actually affects each and every single one of your relationships, that like the gospel is actually practical uh, for your life. <laughs> Uh, so to speak. And so uh, last week we looked at dating. Tonight we're going to be looking at marriage. And um, just before I begin, I kind of want to thank specifically two guys, uh, Matt Howe and Brian Sorgenfry. These are RUF campus ministers uh, at Tennessee, LOL, jokes on him. Um, And then Brian Sorgenfry is at Ole Miss. Um, I want to thank them because I actually stole a lot of the content they used in their sermons for tonight's talk. Gotta give credit where credit's due. Um, and look, I realize this is, this is a loaded topic, y'all. This is a really loaded topic tonight. Um, everybody's kind of affected by marriage, one way or another, right? Either that's a broken marriage or um, hopefully a healthy marriage. Maybe it's um, marriage you've observed um, from other people in the culture, whatever, right? Like, we all kind of have a category for marriage. Um, like I said, right, like hopefully that's mom and dad having a healthy marriage and you just want one like mom and dad. Uh, but if I were to guess, right, if, if I were to kind of put a finger on it, I would assume probably for more of us tonight, um, that's actually, right, like experiencing mom and dad blow up at each other, mom and dad fighting. Um, perhaps they did this so much that um, your parents actually got divorced. Right? The idea of marriage for you at best is, is confusing and maybe at worst um, even traumatizing. And I think regardless of like where we're coming from tonight on a personal level, like I said, all of us have questions surrounding marriage. Um, right? There are cultural questions like, well, what about gay marriage? Is that something Christians should do? There are Bible questions like, what does this word submit mean? Right? Is the Bible painting a misogynistic view of marriage? And just like we already established, right, there's also like deeply personal questions that we bring when we when we come to hear about marriage. Right. Like, am I ever going to get married? Will marriage jeopardize my career? What if I marry the wrong person? How do I do marriage differently or, or maybe the same? Right. Like as my parents did. So what I want to do tonight is, is I want to kind of like present the big overarching view of marriage. I don't want to address the cultural questions or even like the more specific Bible questions, not because they aren't important. They definitely are important. Um, And I would love to get get together with you, have that conversation over coffee or a meal or something. Um, And in fact, you know what? Like if it's helpful, I might post some resources in uh, the group me later. I don't know if I'm going to do that yet, uh, just because this is such a loaded topic. I'd rather kind of have that conversation with you in person. But I will be touching, right? Like, I'm not going to go cultural. I'm not going to go specific into the kind of the, the 
maybe nuanced Bible questions you might have. But I hope to kind of touch on some of your personal questions. But I want to caveat this, right? Like I only have 30 minutes or so, and uh, I'm definitely not going to get to everything, uh, right? The same was true about dating last week. I wish I could have like gotten a little bit more practical even, like when it came to the dating talk last week. Just ran out of time. And as a side note, like for those of y'all who have, who have found me and like have um, been honest with me about either what you liked or, or how that maybe that talk rubbed you the wrong way, I really appreciate that. Like I'm never going to grow to know the types of questions that you guys are actually asking about the Bible unless I hear from you. Like I like this, but this was this was not so great. <laughs> this is where I think you were wrong. Um, and so just as a follow-up, I, I hope to address some of the maybe more practical, specific questions y'all have about like physical boundaries next week when we talk about sex. So stay tuned, come back. We're going to talk more about sex next week. So with all those disclaimers out of the way, marriage. Um, looking at our text tonight, I want to talk about the priority of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the power to marriage, right? Those are my three points. The priority of marriage, the purpose of marriage, and the power of marriage. First, the priority. Let's revisit verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This verse sounds familiar. It's because like, I read it last week. The author of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, he's actually quoting Genesis 2.24. He's actually quoting the Old Testament as he talks about like what happens in marriage. The phrase hold fast, right? Like in the Greek is actually one word. It literally means like cling to, join to. Some English translations have actually communicated this idea by writing that the man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. And if I ever do like premarital counseling with any of y'all, we will spend a lot of time talking about leaving and cleaving. One of the reasons, and like there are many, right, that this idea of two becoming one is profound has to do with like the subtleties of how we relate to each other. Think about it like this, like when a man and a woman get, get married, they are bringing their specific like family cultures with them. This is really funny with like my wife and I, um, her family culture is a lot different than mine. And um, we bring those expectations into marriage, right? It's like cleaving becomes this process of, learning the fact that you speak your own kind of like secret language and this other person you're married to like speaks his own, you know, speaks another secret language and you're trying to like relate to each other and like while you're speaking these different languages. And so like maybe this is stating the obvious that it's pretty complicated, right? It gets complicated. How do you, how do you do life? And so uh, I was trying to think about what this looks like and I came across a video by a famous, you know, theologian, very highbrow. His name's Chris Rock. He talks about how complicated and hard this whole like cleaving process looks like. I had to edit the language a little bit for, you know, for the children. Um, This is what Chris Rock says. He says, y'all, marriage is tough. Marriage is real tough. Marriage is so tough that Nelson Mandela got a divorce. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in a South African prison, he got beaten and tortured every day for 27 years and did it with no problem whatsoever. He was made to do hard labor in 100 degree South African heat for 27 years and did it with no problem. He got out of jail after 27 years of torture, spent six months with his wife and said, I can't take this poop anymore. 
why I love this clip is um, I think because in 44 seconds, Chris Rock encapsulates how I think a lot of our culture views marriage, right? Like it's so hard and it ends in a 45% divorce rate. So then, right, two implications from that. Like one, put off marriage as long as possible, right? You have to date the other person for like years or something to be perfectly sure that like it's not going to end up in the way that it did for Chris Rock. Or two, just like don't get married at all. But what I want you to see is like that's not the language of verse 31. A lot of New Testament theologians actually refer to the language of verse 31 as covenantal language. But like the difficulty though, like in me even saying that, is that like this word covenant is religiousy. It's foreign. You know, y'all are looking at me like I've maybe heard that in like church circles or whatever. But what does that mean? What does that mean when you're at a wedding and the guy up front says, you know, these two are now going to be entered into like the covenant of marriage. We just kind of roll with it. Like, what does it mean? I think I think some people have tried to like explain covenant by comparing it to like maybe a contract. And so let's try that example on for a second. Um, I'm going to use just a recent illustration from my life. From my life. Uh, I got my haircut last week. Thanks for noticing. Really appreciate y'all. Uh, I go to this, um, I go to Great Clips, very fancy place on the west side of town. Um, it's by the Plum Market, if y'all have ever been by there. And uh, I see my girl Vanessa. Vanessa's awesome. She uh, is from Brent, uh, Benton Harbor. We've gotten to know each other. We got this like really deep relationship. But y'all, it's contractual, right? Like I pay her money. She cuts my hair and gives me like some sort of fade to hide my widow's peak. And if I don't like the haircut, I can like go to the Great Clips off Packard by Black Diesel. Right? Like, and, and the same is true for her. If I don't give her money, she can say, I'm not going to cut your hair. And like the relationship ends as much as I really feel like I got kind of a vibe going with Vanessa. As much as I think, you know, she kind of likes me and I enjoy her. I have the freedom to upgrade my service if at any other time, like, a better provider kind of comes along. Y'all tracking? So, like, I think, unfortunately, (laughs) this is how our culture views marriage, right? There's an agreement to, like, there's an agreement to provide each other with happiness. And once that happiness leaves, you have the right to go and find someone else who makes you happy. Right, you're agreeing to a particular service. Um, and what I want you to see, what like, I, I'm kind of praying that you see, is that the Bible has a greater priority of marriage. The biblical language in verse 31 uh, of holds fast or cleave or clings to, right, like, doesn't imply this contractual agreement. Right? A covenant is not a contract. Whereas a contract is a promise, like I said, to provide a service that can be voided at any time and for any reason, right? Like a covenant is this public, permanent promise. A public, permanent promise. And before you like, get scared out of your mind, maybe at like, the, the level of commitment, here's why I think like, a, a covenantal view is, is better than a contractual view of marriage. I'm going to make my case. I'm going to shoot my shot, Right? Here's the reality. If marriage is a covenant, you finally get to rest. You finally can 
exhaust, or you can finally breathe out, right? You don't have to be so exhausted. You can be yourself. There's freedom to know that in my marriage, I can like pick my nose and Catherine isn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, I could share like some crazy stories about my marriage. Um, it's not for up here. Filter, filter. Um, right? In other words, like there's security and a love that says, I know you at your worst and I'm going to love you at my best. I know you at your worst and I pledge to love you at my best, right? Like this is why if you go to a wedding and you hear like the vows, you know, going back and forth, they're always like future related. I will love you in sickness and health and richer and poorer, poorer, yada, 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 right? Like you are covenanting yourself to a person. You're not covenanting yourself to a service. You're covenanting yourself to a person, this is why, like, when you're dating someone and y'all move in together, like, you actually can't even come close to providing all the wonderful freedom and security that marriage can. Um, Tim Keller says that, like, when this happens, when y'all move in together and you're dating, um, your relationship is always a game of marketing and promotion. You always have to feel, like, on because at any given moment, the relationship could be in jeopardy and, like, the other person could just straight up leave. All right, make sure you're, like, performing well enough at cleaning the kitchen. Right? Make sure you're, like, performing well enough at sex. Make sure you're performing well enough at, like, fighting. And that the other person, like, doesn't get completely turned off, like, when you say something really harsh. So you can fight, but, like, don't really speak your mind because that could end poorly. Don't y'all see? Like, you're always having to perform, you're marketing yourself and, and promoting yourself out of fear that the other person might actually leave you. Like, there's no rest in that. There's no, no security in that. So marriage is covenant. It's awesome and freeing and amazing. But it also has a purpose to it. It's not just like roses and unicorns and butterflies, right? This view of marriage has a purpose to it, which is my second point. What is the purpose of marriage? I'm going to reread verses 25 through 27 for us one more time. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul is comparing the way that husbands love their wives to the way that Jesus loves you when you marry him, so to speak. Um, right? Like in other words, when the beauty of Jesus busts down the doors of your unbelief and he begins to love you with the magnitude of his love, you actually begin to change. Jesus sanctifies you, right? Like that's another word of, that, that can kind of communicate that he transforms you. Jesus transforms you by his love. Marriage with Jesus doesn't ultimately leave you the same. And so one of, if not the greatest purposes of marriage is for you to change. It's for you to be sanctified by love, the love of another person. Um, but do you know what like, the major assumption is with this statement? Is that like, you're going to marry someone with baggage, with warts, with wounds, right? And with like a lot of mess going on. But newsflash, right? They're also marrying somebody 
with warts and wounds and baggage. Yeah, you know, a lot of mess going on. So for, for those of you like in the audience, maybe doing the math out there, right? Like this means we have two broken people who are flawed, who are selfish, what the Bible calls sinners. And they're coming together to like do this thing called marriage. This equation is why atheist Alain Batan, I think that's how you say it, <laughs> probably not. It's why atheist Alain Batan in 2016 could write an article in the New York Times called Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. Um, it was the number one read article in 2016 by like a long shot. And just think with me for a second, like everything that happened in 2016. I got married, but no. Um, like, you had the presidential election, right? You had Clinton and Trump. You had Brexit. You had the refugee crisis. I mean, 2016 was a crazy year, and this was the number one red article. I'll throw it up in the community chat after we're done. And listen to, like, how the opening paragraph starts. This is, this is how it starts. Alain Baton writes, quote, It's one of the things we are most afraid might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it. And yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person. Partly it's because we have a bewildering array, we have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to others. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well in a wiser, more self-aware society than our own. A standard question on any early dinner date would be, and how are you crazy? End quote. So that's our challenge, y'all. Grab somebody after a large group. First question, don't ask them what their major is. Ask them, how are you crazy? Kidding. Totally kidding. Or not. You decide. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, y'all, right? Like, I think the reason this article is so popular is that like, it's actually deconstructing our view of marriage. Right? Rather than trying to figure out if the person you're dating is crazy... You know, like, you finally uncovered the secret, like, crazy thing that they do. Rather than trying to figure out if they're, they're crazy, it leads with the assumption that they actually are crazy. It's just a matter of, like, picking out your particular, like, flavor of crazy. Do you want this flavor? Do you want that flavor? And I think our culture, right, like, but especially Christians, especially Christians, have gotten it all wrong when it comes to marriage. Instead of seeing marriage for what it is, right, like a vehicle to be changed by love, we see it as like a vehicle for personal and even like existential fulfillment. Like I touched on last week, no human can do that for you. It's a lie. Um, my wife and I used to love watching The Bachelor. Judge us all you want. Come on. I see, I see the looks. I think half the time when I make jokes, you guys are like, is he joking? Is he joking? Um, we used to be into The Bachelor. We used to, actually used to do like, um, like a bracket. It was, it was kind of intense. <laughs> Tell you about it after. Um, but why that show comes back year after year and why it got such a following, I bet half y'all watch it, right? Why it has such a following is, right, we're, dr we're drawn in by this idea of like, is Billy going to find love? Is it going to happen? All these, you know, like 25 women or the bachelorette, right? You have like 25 men. She going to find love? We, we, we view love like as this thing that, you know, you just kind of fall into. Like you're walking down State Street, see a cute girl, and you just like fall into a ditch or something. Um, 
it's just random and it happens. Right? And as a result, like, we, I'm going to make the case, like, I don't even think we really know what we're looking for in a spouse. But if I, like, if I, if I could just maybe get personal for a second, like, I'll hang out with you guys a lot, right? And you have a crush on so-and-so, you know, I'm like, well, what do you like about so-and-so? And, and this is usually what I hear is like, oh, you know, he's nice. She's, she's cute. I like spending time with them. They're fun. And like, please hear me. I'm not patronizing this. Like, um, those are great things to look for in a spouse. Like, I hope you have fun with your spouse. You know, like, I hope you think your spouse is cute and nice. But if I could like maybe simplify, I think what I'm hearing from y'all for a second is I think most of y'all are looking for someone that you're compatible with, right? Someone you can like vibe with for a long time, you know, the rest of your life. And here's the thing is I think the Bible is putting forward this idea of marriage, though, that that says compatibility is actually the achievement of love and not the prerequisite. Compatibility is the achievement of love and not the prerequisite. What do I mean by this? I mean exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians and Alain de Baton is saying in the New York Times. Like, you and all your crazy will not be compatible with someone else and all their crazy. It's a fallacy. It just doesn't exist. Right? Rather, compatibility happens over time when two people demonstrate over and over and over again just how committed they are to loving one another. Right? Th- think about like this. Like this is true even in your friendships. This is why a lot of your oldest friendships are some of your best friendships. Why? Because you've committed over like I don't know ten years of your life, ever since you were eight years old, that like you're my friend. And I'm like when push comes to shove, when your parents die, I will be there. Right? Like a lot of our oldest friendships are some of our best. And obviously that's not true about all your old friendships. Some fall apart. Maybe some have fallen apart since you've gotten to college. But what I'm trying to say is that like, they fall apart because someone or both friends have stopped choosing to love one another. Not because the two of y'all you know, somehow wake up one morning and you're like, well, I guess maybe I'm not compatible with this friend of mine. Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, I'm quoting her now. Kathy Keller says, You're looking for a good block of marble, not a refined statue. Her assumption is that if you have this good block of marble, something that is ready to be worked on and changed by love, then over time there there will be this beautiful sculpture put on display for all to see and behold. I think this means a lot of things. Um, But here are three quick application points. Tried to make these as quick as possible, right? And they're going to be in order from most controversial to least controversial. So application point number one, you guys are all going to disagree with this, so just get ready. Most controversial. Some of y'all who have been dating for a long time just need to get married. What are you waiting for? To graduate? I can totally understand the desire right, to wait to graduate to get married. I promise you I can. I'm not like this weirdo up here. It's just like, you get married, you get married, you get married. Like, I would have never gotten married <laughs> in undergraduate. As an undergrad, I couldn't fathom being married, right? So, like, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
But I do want to ask the question is like, why is graduation this big non-negotiable timeline as you think about marriage? So you can like focus on getting your degree. Who says that you can't do that while being married? Like, is it money and being financially independent? Like that makes sense, right? But you could work a job. Your spouse could work a job. And, like, again, my point here, right, isn't to, like, put pressure on you guys to get married tomorrow. But, my, like, my point is to just question some of the practices, practices that are assumed in our culture. Right? Like, I think it's assumed that, like, you just don't get married until you graduate. I'm asking, like, well, why? I don't know. You might have an, uh, an answer to that. Right? I'm really pushing back, like I said, on Michigan culture. I know it. Right? But my hot take is that often, first and foremost, we commit ourselves to our careers and then kind of like try to like fit marriage in on the side. And if marriage doesn't like fit my career, then I'm not doing it. And that, that isn't objectively wrong at all. So hear me. That, like that is not wrong. Especially if your career means a ton to you. Again, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. But here's what I am saying. If you want to get married and you're currently in a relationship that's gone on for a while, why can't you get married in college or at least shortly after? Why do you have to wait until like you're 30? I'm 30. I promise you, I promise you getting married is way better than dating. Way better. All right, most controversial. You guys can disagree with me all you want. Um, application point number two. Some of y'all who... <laughs> Some of y'all need to stop looking for the one and begin looking for someone. What I mean by this is that if compatibility is the achievement of love and not the prerequisite, then you don't have to like spend years of your life swiping left or right on Tinder to try to find like the perfect match. All you need is a good block of marble, someone who wants to grow and change with you. And I think for some reason, Christians have kind of like bought into this idea of a soulmate. Like God has this like perfect person out there for you. And this creates like all this stress. Like, Robert, how do I know? How do I know if like the person I'm dating is the one? And, and the answer like Christians usually give to that is even more perplexing. We say stuff like, well, you're just going to know. You're just going to know. And like, I don't even know what that means. Right? But, like, I think it means, like, there's going to be, like, this internal, like, nudging, you know, or something, um, telling you to marry a particular person, right? Like, it's so mystical and convoluted, and it leads to this high anxiety and confusion about, like, when to marry or who to marry, and you know when, like, knew when Catherine was the one I want to marry? It was on our wedding day, and she said, I do. That's how I knew. That's how I knew she was the one for me. And like, this might not sound super romantic at all. Some of y'all are like, oh my gosh, that is, do you guys love each other? All right, this doesn't sound super romantic at all, right? But again, I'm really trying to stress here that the purpose of marriage isn't personal fulfillment. When we make marriage about personal fulfillment, it actually like only crashes and burns. I think it's why there's such a high divorce rate in our society today. Um, John Cox, I've mentioned him like all throughout the semester. Uh, he calls this phenomenon uh, two ticks, no dog. 
He's expressing the idea that like you have two people with baggage, wounds, needs, and they're stuck to each other, trying to like suck life out of each other. And there's no life to be sucked. From a Christian worldview, right, the reality is God is sovereign. There's a desire to get married, which I'm sure a lot of you have or eventually will have. And a person is out there who, like, also wants to be transformed by the love of Christ, then you can actually, like, trust his providence. Providence is a fancy word for plan. You can actually trust his providence and go ahead and just, like, see if you want to get married. Like, ask her out. Ask him out. Go on a date. Whatever. All right. Application number three. Singleness is amazing. Singleness is amazing. This might sound counterintuitive. Like, I thought this was a sermon on on marriage. What's going on here? We're going to have a whole sermon on singleness in two weeks. So come on back for that. But the Bible does not idolize marriage in the way that Christians have historically done. Singleness, in the words of the same Apostle Paul tonight, who's writing about marriage, is considered a gift. Like, it's God's goodness to you to be single. Some of y'all need to hear that. You are not less than if you are single. So, again, why do I mention singleness in a sermon about marriage? Why is that an application here? Is that you don't have to be married. You don't have to be married to be sanctified, transformed, or changed. There's not like the super duper holy Christians who are married and then like everybody else. And think about it for a second. The one person who perfectly embodied everything it meant to be human, Jesus, was single. Dude didn't get married. 33 years of his life. Roughly. (laughs) Like, all of your needs for intimacy can't be met in marriage. Right? This is why you can, like, this is why you need community. All of your intimacy needs cannot be met by one single person. So you need to belong to, like, a community. That's why if you're a Christian, like, marriage is optional, but belonging to the church is not. Okay, and so if all this is true about marriage... If I'm just like one broken mess with baggage and warts and pledging myself to another person with baggage and warts, like how does this not like end up in flames? Maybe, maybe that's your question tonight. You're like, I just really want to know like how to make it work. I don't want to get divorced like my parents did. And so this is my last point is, which is just like the power to marriage. Real quick, let's go back to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is profound, right? Paul is saying that there is nothing like it. Why? Because marriage is like this divine reenactment of the gospel. Marriage is a divine drama put on for all the world to see of how committed to and to what extreme loves and to what extreme that Jesus loves his people. So if you're new to Christianity and, you know, you want to know, like, kind of like just the big deal about Jesus, what we refer to as the gospel. Paul is saying that, like, you don't have to look any further than marriage. This is why marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Marriage is a covenant because Christians believe that we have a God who, as he was betrayed, mocked and scorned on a Roman cross, we have a God who stayed. Jesus, as the God-man, was abandoned 
by his people. He was abandoned by his bride. It's as he's abandoned by the people who are supposed to love him that the fullness of love is actually displayed for you. The cross is the fulfillment. It's the pinnacle of his covenant, steadfast, always and forever love toward his bride. The cross says, I am not leaving. I am so committed to you that there is literally nothing you could do to stop me from loving you. You can kill me and I will still love you. Friends, do you know what this means? This means that God, God loves you at RUF. He loves you while you're reading your Bible. He loves you while you're praying. But also, he loves you when you're looking at porn. He loves you when you want to cut yourself. He loves you when you struggle with what he has to say in the Bible. Some of you, some of you, I, I think, probably might be looking at me and thinking, oh, Robert, I want that to be true. I, I just don't believe it. How does my heart, like, absorb what I'm hearing cognitively? How do I feel it? Because I can stand up here and go, he loves you. And you're like, great. How do I feel it? You know how? You experience the truth of this reality in the context of your relationships. The context of your relationships. There was a time early on in my marriage where I did something to really hurt Catherine. Um, We were talking, did something to really hurt Catherine, and she just begins sobbing. She begins weeping. Nothing I could do or say like could fix what had already been done or said. All right, it was a thousand percent my fault. Thousand percent. Still like one of the worst memories I have. Um, And the waves of shame just kind of like sank deep into like the pit of my soul. Um, I knew my wife's tears were like all my fault. Couldn't imagine hurting somebody, especially like the person I love the most in the world that much. As we're sitting there, I want nothing more than to like honestly go and hurt myself. Do you know what my wife says? Um, She says, Robert, I love you. I forgive you. My, My sin still had consequences. Her saying this didn't like not ignore what I had done or said. But I'm telling you right now, there's no moment in my entire life where the gospel made more sense. I've spent three years of my life in seminary. I've learned Greek. I've learned Hebrew. I've learned systematic theology. I can, none of that did more for me than hearing my wife say, I forgive you. And this is not limited to marriage, y'all. You don't need marriage for this. What makes marriage so amazing is that it is friendship. It's friendship on steroids, Matt Howell says. It's a lifetime of having deep and intimate friendship with someone who's walking alongside of you and showing you Jesus. In fact, this is why Paul calls marriage a profound mystery. It's not a profound mystery because, you know, your spouse somehow completes you. It's a profound mystery because it points you to the one who can. It's like a giant arrow pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the cross. 
And if that's true, it, like, then the gospel can actually be like power to your marriage. It is the answer to the question of how you can give and give and love and love your spouse when you aren't getting anything in return from them. So I'm going to close with this illustration. Um, Tim Keller uses the analogy of why people give to charities. He says that somebody can like, make a big gift to a charity only if they have a steady stream of income that allows them to do that. If you're making enough money, or, or, like, you can afford to give some of that to like, the charity over there. Maybe RUF. <laughs> but, but, if that steady stream of income dries up, then you won't give. You're going to run out of money. It's too costly to your livelihood to continue to give at that point. In the same way, you can give a lot of love if you are getting a lot of love. So the question for you tonight, question for us tonight, where are you going to get a resource for that amount of love so big, so strong, so powerful that you can continue to love even when you're getting nothing in return? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you so much that you love us. You love us, um, especially...